Now, Christianity is not like any other religion or philosophy because at the centre of it is a person. Other religions, other philosophies have rules, regulations, morality, modes of living, worship practices, rituals, uh, key people, prophets, leaders, uh, teaching, modelling life. But Christianity is Christ. So all four talks, that's what it really is, that Christianity is Christ. Uh, see, Buddhism, Hinduism, even Islam, uh, it, it, they, they may have founders, but they do not actually centre on that person. They'd be the same with them or without them. Confucianism is still Confucianism without Confucius. You don't need Confucius to have Confucianism. But without Christ, Christianity is nothing. Christianity is false. For it's all about him, his claims, his actions, his life, his death, his resurrection, his rule on earth, his return. It's all about him. It's all about Jesus, the Christ. That's how Mark starts his gospel. Go to Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's where it all starts off. Right from the start, the author tells the reader the final conclusion of the book. He, he kind of, it, it, there's no spoiler alert. He spoils right up front. He tells you what it's about right at the beginning. The final conclusion of the book is all there in the verse 1. The people in the events that are now recorded, they don't know this. You, the reader, know it because he's told you and we're about to find out how the people in the events discovered what we were told right up front. And so, you know, sometimes you, you, you watch a whodunit and you don't know who's done it till the end. But there are other kinds of whodunits where they show you who did it in the first place and then you're watching the detective work out what you already knew. Well, it's the latter category, right? You're already told who it is. Now you're going to work out how, how the people in the events discover the truth. He even tells us what he means by the words, Christ, the Son of God. Notice it's not God the Son, it's the Son of God. You say, I'm a Son of God, but I'm not God the Son. The two things are not the same. The Son of God is a phrase of the Old Testament that actually means the Messiah, the Christ. So he's saying it's the Christ, the Son of God one. That's the one we're talking about. And he points to where you're supposed to find out about it, that is, in the Old Testament, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. He immediately takes you back to the Old Testament. Behold, I send your messenger before your face. You want to know who Christ is? Then read your Old Testaments. That's what we're talking about. This is the context. That is, it happened in the first century, when the Greco-Roman world, as it was called, existed, but it happened in a subset of the Greco-Roman world. The broad general context is the Greco-Roman world. The document is written in common everyday Greek. But inside the Greco-Roman world, there are all kinds of subgroups, cultures, mini-cultures, and this subgroup is Judaism. And so if you want to find out what it's about, you've got to understand Judaism rather than Roman philosophy or Greek philosophy. The background is not Greek or Roman. The background is Judaism of the first century. And so you want to understand that, you've got to understand your Old Testaments. So we'll start this talk again in Genesis 1.1, but you won't give me enough time. So we'll just continue on as we're going, shall we? Mark's Gospel then falls into two distinct halves. 
chapters 1 to 8, asks the, and answers the question, who is Jesus? Uh, we've got the answer, Christ. Chapters 9 to 16, answer, ask and answer the question, why has he come? That is to bring the kingdom, to bring it in his own particular extraordinary way. Uh, at the beginning, he's identified for us, for the spirit comes upon him. And the voice comes from heaven declaring to us, you are my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. You see it there in the baptism, verse 9, in those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Here is a combination of two Old Testament quotations. It's an illusion, if you like, but it's more than an illusion. It's a strong illusion, it's a quote, really. Psalm 2, the Christ, you are my beloved son. Isaiah 42, the suffering servant, with whom I am well pleased. Psalm 2 is a really important psalm. It's the, it's the kind of national anthem of Israel. It's very significant, and I've got a funny feeling you've got a quiet time on it tomorrow, haven't you? So I'm not going to tell you too much about Psalm 2 because I don't want to ruin what you've got to study, but it is, you're studying the national anthem, and unlike um, uh, our national anthem, which is a lot of nonsense set to a bad tune, uh, their national anthem actually had deep and profound meaning that was true and right and was all about the Messiah, the Christ. It's very, very important. You need to know your Old Testament, all your Old Testament, but there are some high, high watermarks, some really important bits. Psalm 2 is one of them. Isaiah 42 is another one. For Isaiah 42 introduces a series of songs that culminate in Isaiah 53. And you are of the generation of Colin, so some of you know Isaiah 53, 6. And I can't quote it anymore because you all start making sheep noises. <laughs> which kind of destroys one of the best verses of the Bible. Isaiah 53, 6 is the John 3:16 of the Old Testament. It is that important, you see. So, you know, we all like, well, I won't, I, I know what you'll do, so I, I daren't do it. But this is the series of songs that culminate in that servant who comes to be beaten, to be rejected, of no particular significance. He's not, his physical appearance is never accorded, which is interesting because Jesus' physical appearance is never recorded. We don't know how tall, short. I presume Jesus looked Jewish, whatever that is. And so, and Isaiah, the suffering servant, we've got nothing physical about him which is attractive. He's quiet, he's a broken, he, he can't break him, he's like a reed. He just bends. And so, here is the conquering king, Christ, who's going to rule the world, and here is the suffering servant who's going to be destroyed and killed. No one has ever put those two things together before, as best we know. You can never know a negative. You know, Next week someone might dig up a document from the 3rd century BC that actually has it. But as best we know, no one had ever put together those two ideas because those two ideas are seemingly mutually exclusive. The conquering king who is killed who's rejected, who's a weak, frail, 
person. It just doesn't seem to have anything to do with each other until the voice from heaven at the baptism of Jesus. So now we know even more. And we know Jesus knows. Jesus knows who he is. Jesus knows that he's going to be the conquering king who comes to suffer for the sins of the world. And we now know that's who it's going to be. But the people there still don't know it. And so verse 14, 15, he starts, he commences his work when John is arrested, comes into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time's fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. For the, first, the rest of the chapters 1 to 8, Jesus is proclaiming publicly the coming of the kingdom of God. It's just about to arrive. It's just about to come. And effectively raising the question, who is he? Who is this man? Who is the man who teaches with authority? Who is the man who drives out demons? Who is the man who cleanses the lepers, who heals the sick, who raises the dead, who feeds the multitudes, who walks on the water, who stills the storm, who confounds the teachers? Who is this man is the question that everybody has got on their lips. Because he comes out of total obscurity. Uh, Nazareth is somewhere like central Queensland, you know, a, a little town in nowheresville of no significance, no importance. What good thing could possibly come out of Nazareth? And here is this man from nowhere who seems to do things that no one has ever done before. We know who he is because we've been reading from verse 1. We know who he is because we've had the account of his baptism. We know who he is, but... What about the people? What about the crowds who come to hear him? What about the opposition who come to hate him? What about the disciples who've left all to follow him? Who do they think he was? And so we come to our reading in chapter 8, at the end of that section of the Gospel. Some of you may have heard me speak on this passage before. And we're going to just take a lot longer that than I usually ever take on this passage. And I'm really glad to take the four talks over this passage because it is central to the Gospel of Mark. It is the kind of hinge upon which the whole Gospel hangs, is these, these few verses. And also because it's central to Christianity because it's all about Christ. Who he is, why he comes, what have we got to do about it? And so... Here is the moment where the decisions are being called for. Uh, uni is a great time for decisions. We make all kinds of decisions. Uh, over these years you're making them. And possibly you don't know you're making them. That's part of the problem. But they're the kinds of decisions that often will determine the rest of your life as you set your course in particular ways. I mean, I was at uni, I was only 18, when I met Helen, my wife, in her second year of university. Uh, we were that young because in our days we only had five years of high school because we were more intelligent. You've got to have six to kind of <laughs> be thoroughly abused of any hope of learning anything by being at our New South Wales education department. But uh, So I was 18 at university. In my second university I met the woman who I've now lived with for the 50 years as my wife. Um, I was only 21 when I was tempted to leave off the plan that I had of becoming a minister in order to become an academic. When I was about 15, 14, 13, 14, I became a Christian. By 15, 16, I'd worked out that I was to be a minister. 
I went and saw my minister about it and he said, no, you can't go to Moore College till you're 19. So what do you do when you finish school at 17 and you can't start college till you're 19? I did what you do, an arts degree. Uh, that's what you do when you don't know what to do, isn't it? So I, but by the end of four years of doing it, you see, the temptation was to pursue an academic course of life. And the decision really, the decisions you're making at this point change everything that is taking place. The major decision of life I'd already made. That was the decision to become Christian. That was the decision upon which every other decision of my life, including whom I married and which course I would study and what I would do. See, that was the basic fundamental decision of my life. The very centre of Christianity is who is Jesus. And when I came to understand who is Jesus, I came to understand what my life was all about and what it was going to be about and has been ever since. For Christianity is Christ. And what you decide about Christ determines everything else in this lifetime as well as I believe in the next. So Jesus turns to his disciples and he asks the question that everybody was asking. Who do people say that I am? You see it there in verse 27. Jesus went up, went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? The answer to that question is the answer to life. Your answer to this question is the answer to your life. It's that important, I believe. Now, of course, there are many possibilities, hundreds of answers you can give to that, but generally they can be summed up under three or four. Um, uh, good, bad, uh, the one I like, because it's alliteration and preachers love alliteration, is liar, lunatic, legend or lord. Uh, you don't always get alliterations on L's. L's are hard letters to give alliterations on, but you can pretty well tuck any answer people give under one of those four headings. He was a liar. Uh, the trouble with calling Jesus a liar is we don't know of any lies that he taught. And he not only taught the world the importance of speaking the truth, he's persuaded generations to create truth speaking as one of their key moral factors, which for a liar is a very clever thing to be able to do. He's a lunatic. But a more sane man never walked to the earth. Read the accounts of his life, what he said, what he did. Unless claiming to be God's son means you're mad. But then, of course, if you are God's son, how do you claim to be God's son? I mean, there's nothing of Jesus that gives you the idea he's a lunatic. He's a legend. That is a story that's grown and grown over time. And so, you know, what was something happened back there, but now what we have is something far greater than what happened back there. But the trouble is the greatest claims of Jesus occur in the earliest documents. I mean, he rose from the dead. That's as big a claim as you're going to get. And that's as old as anything we know about Jesus. It's not like it has developed and grown bigger. These three answers, liar, lunatic, legend, are answers that enable you to dismiss Jesus as someone that you don't have anything to do with. And so they're very attractive to people who don't want God interfering with their lives. Which, if you want to know what that technically means, sinners. But the fourth answer, the Lord, is unattractive to sinners. 
Because it requires us to submit our lives to somebody else. And we hate submitting anything to anybody. We hate submission as a very concept. But if he's your Lord, well then... But he's a different kind of Lord to most Lords because he's also our Saviour who laid down his life for us. Now that's a different kind of Lord. We have all kinds of rulers in our world, but they rarely are willing to die for us. They're happy for us to die for them, but this one died for us. So who do people say Jesus is? Still a central question, but my experience is that people, while most people will have an answer and give an answer if you ever ask them, very, very few have ever investigated the evidence to see for themselves. Very, very few have ever read the New Testament or even a gospel. Some years ago we did a, a survey at New South Wales University of some 500 students and we asked a, a series of questions and one of them was who is Jesus and then embedded in later on we asked questions about how, often, how much of the New Testament they had read. It was interesting, nearly everybody gave us an answer on who Jesus was and over 90% had never read any part of the New Testament. So without looking at any of the basic evidences that are publicly available, that is the most published book in the world, they have their answer. That's university. It, well, New South Wales Uni, you know. It would be different if it was at Macquarie, wouldn't it? <laughs> it's no longer good enough when you're at uni to go by what your parents say. You need to read Jesus for yourself. And you need to read the Gospel account of Jesus. That's just basic historical thing to do, is to look at the primary documents, isn't it? And I guess many in this room, uh, uh, from our church connection, etc., the Gospel we have read for ourselves, but then again, you're an unusual group. I'm saying just in theory, I haven't met most of you, so I'm not really saying you're just totally eccentric, but as a group, theoretically, you're very eccentric. Um, you mustn't expect your fellow students at university to be anything like this, uh, nor even to expect your lecturers to be like this. Most people are, are genuinely ignorant of Jesus. Uh, though they will express opinions of him. One of the characteristics I always notice with the lecturers, when they've got to refer to something Christian, you can always tell that they've never read the Bible because they quote the King James Version. Right? As soon as an English lecturer quotes the King James Version, unless they're a weird, eccentric, Elizabethan kind of uh, scholar, uh, you know they haven't read it. They've just looked it up somewhere on the web and thought they'd get the right version. But... Let's come back to Mark 8. The disciples answered that Jesus' question in verse 28, and they told him John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. Now these were good first century Jewish answers. Nobody then thought he was a legend, because he was standing in front of them. And no one thought him as a lunatic or a liar. These are the first century answers. You see, John the Baptist had been beheaded. And Jesus didn't start ministering till after John was imprisoned. And when Herod had murdered John, um, people were spooked by him because Jesus kept on doing the things that John was doing. It seemed as if we killed off John and now this bloke's arrived and he's doing the John thing even better and bigger. And Elijah was prophesied in the Old Testament to come before the coming of the kingdom. Jesus goes around saying, the kingdom's coming, the kingdom's coming. Well, where's Elijah? 
Is he the Elijah? Or one of the prophets, they hadn't had prophets for generations and then this great prophet John the Baptist arrived and now John the Baptist is dead. Well, that's what often happened to prophets and here's another prophet. See, the Romans wouldn't have given that answer. The Greeks wouldn't have given those answers. This is Jewish country. This is Jewish answers of the first century. Good first century Jewish answers, which Jesus doesn't even discuss. But rather he turns in verse 29 to a much harder question. You, who do you say that I am? It's a different kind of question. One with an emphasis upon them, you. It's actually slightly more emphatic than the translation I'm working on in the English here. You, who do you say that I am? Now, see, if you ask me, who did Australia vote for at the last elections? Uh, I'd say, well, the Liberal Party, you know, uh, Scott Morrison, ScoMo, uh, Scotty from marketing, uh, you know, wh whatever. But I, I can say this, and it's not a problem. But if you say, but Philip, who did you vote for? Then I'd say, none of your business. <laughs> it's a private ballot. It's a secret ballot. I don't have to tell anybody whom I voted for. And in fact, I don't tell anybody, not even my wife. A secret's a secret. See, one question is a factual question. Who did Australia vote for? The other question is a personal question. Different kind of question. You've got to understand the nature of the questions people are asking, not just the questions they're asking. This is a different kind of one. You're seeking information not about the facts of life, but the truth, the history, the politics. You're seeking information about Philip Jensen. And that's my secret that I don't have to share with you. So, now we have this question. Who do you say that I am? And Peter answers... And finally, after eight chapters, we see the disciples, the pennies are finally dropping. They're getting it right. The answer of chapter 1, verse 1 now comes from the lips of Peter. You are the Christ. At last, he's got it. Uh, the word Christ just means anointed one. In the, uh, in the Jewish world, they anointed the prophets, the priests, but especially the kings. Uh, anointing was a way of uh, appointing. We still use it. You do not remember the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II, our sovereign lady and queen. But I do. I was at school at the time. And we had endless, endless preparations for it. They told us all about it. It was the British Empire in those days. It wasn't even the Commonwealth, I think. it was the. And so she was going to be crowned. But what I was fascinated as a very little boy, let me say, in 1953, but what I was fascinated with, that she was going to be anointed with oil as well. But in my wild imagination of a youthful Australian, I imagined a kind of, you know, a, a pint, because we were not in metric in those days, a pint or two of sump oil kind of coming down through her hair. Kind of, I thought this would be spectacular. Uh, I didn't know what I was going to do to the dress and how they would cover it up and all the rest of it. And so when the picture came out and they got one little drop and just dropped a little bit of oil on it, I was deeply disappointed. <laughs> you know, I thought a good lump of oil would mean the crown could squeeze on more. You know, just, <laughs> I had a wonderful idea. My coronation in my head was much better than the one that happened. And the anointing of oil was a key. But it's a symbolism that goes right back into the Old Testament days of the way you appoint a king, a queen, is by anointing with oil. 
And so here is the term, you are the anointed king. Which kind of anointed king? Well, Psalm 2. Uh, 2 Samuel 7, Ezekiel 37. These are the kinds of Old Testament passages which talk about this king. This king who's going to rule over the people of Israel and over all the world. It's that king. When we call the word Lord, not legend, liar, lunatic, we mean the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the ruler of the nations, the world ruler who rules over all the nations forever. We don't simply mean Lord little L-O-R-D, we mean capital L-O-R-D. Verse 29, Peter tells the answer. But it's not our answer, it's Peter's answer. See, verse 29 is a question for you. Who do you say... Jesus is. I'm not asking who Jesus is. I'm asking where do you stand with Jesus? That's a different question, isn't it, you see? It's not who do the disciples say that Jesus is, it's who do you say Jesus is? It's the existential question. But who do you say he was or is? You see point four there, my grammar goes all wrong, doesn't it? Was, is. (laughs) I mean, it's right to ask who he was because he was a a person of history. But if he is the Lord, it's wrong to ask the question who he was because he still is. So the very question kind of implies the answer. If you say who was Jesus, it's not wrong to ask that question because it's history, but it's inadequate. If you ask who is Jesus... Well, you're saying something more than he was a man of history. You're saying he is the Lord of history, the risen from the dead, the ruler of the universe. Uh, This is why there's this silly academic fight about using BC and AD, where the academics want us now to use BCE and CE. BC, AD is before Christ, but we don't have AC after Christ because we believe Jesus rose from the dead, so there is no after. You can't have an after Christ. So then we drop into Latin, A.D., Anno Domini, to say, in the year of the Lord. (laughs) But that's a very Christian answer. And the non-Christian academics don't like that. So they've changed it to B.C.E., before the common era, and C.E., the common era, um, which is complete, absolute nonsense. The most ridiculous idea I've ever heard. Uh, There never has been a common era. The Muslims say the world is this year, 1441, the Jews call it 5781, the Chinese call it the year of the rat. There is no common era, and the common era they're talking about actually is identical to the Christian terms. So what are they going on? They're just saying, I want to be an atheist, come and join me. I would never put BCE or CE in any essay. I'd always lose marks, but I don't care, because I'm a Christian and I want the examiner to know it. And I want him to know that I'm not going to just be bow-breaten and bullied into being an atheist by their academic pretensions. I'd rather fail than do that. So back to our question. I'm a Christian, so I'm asking the question, what about you? Who do you think Jesus is? I'm happy for you to answer, well, I don't know who he is, but I know who he was, because then we could talk to each other about history and we could work out who this man was. But before long, looking at the history, you'll be confronted with the question of who do you think he is? And you'll have to go back to, well, he's a liar, or he's a lunatic, or he's a legend. And none of them work. (laughs) 
None of them are satisfactory answers to who this man was. For the history of Jesus really forces you to confront the Lord. But why? Why does it matter who Jesus is? Well, because if he is the Lord, the king, the Lord that's meant in the Old Testament in Psalm 2, in in 2 Samuel 7, in Ezekiel 37, if he is that Lord, then nothing is ever the same again. Not in this world, not in my life. Once you grasp that Jesus is the Lord, then your reason for being alive, the reason for your life, the choices you will make, the purpose of your existence, the morality by which you live, the judgments in the face of death, everything, everything about you is changed. Nothing can ever be the same again. His lordship is not simply, I go to church and worship God. It's not simply about singing songs about him, lovely as they were, and thank you for singing this morning. I I didn't join you in singing as I was getting myself ready, but it's lovely to hear you singing with words and without words on the screen. It was just beautiful. It's wonderful. But that's not what his lordship is about. His lordship is about the fact that I am his servant, I am his slave. A lord in the ancient world that didn't have slaves wasn't much of a lord. Lordship is just the flip side of slavery. That's what lordship is. And he is the lord. He is my lord, my master, my ruler, my king. That is who he is. Well, It matters then. It matters astonishingly. Because I am to do his bidding. (laughs) You remember West Wing? Any of you ever see West Wing? Where? No? Okay. Uh, Where in West Wing they keep on saying, I serve at the pleasure of the president. Which meant they could do any dirty deeds the president told them to do. I serve, at the pre- I serve at the pleasure of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mercifully, he never asks me to do dirty deeds. <laughs> In fact, that's what's so extraordinary about him. This Lord Jesus Christ loved me so much as to die for me. <laughs> and so he cares for me more than I care for him. He cares for me more than I care for myself. This is a Lord worth having, I tell you, but... Don't be mistaken, he's my Lord. I serve at the pleasure of the Lord Jesus. I choose my study, my job, my home, my wife, my how to raise my children, where I spend my time. I, I don't retire because <laughs> I serve at the pleasure of the Lord Jesus Christ and there's no retirement plan. I, I don't spend my elderly years, fishing and golfing. (laughs) That is not the retirement plan because there is no retirement plan in the Lord Jesus Christ. To the day I die, he is my Lord. And the day I die, I see him face to face. It changes everything, you see. Christianity is Christ. It's not about rules, it's not about regulations, it's not about feel-good story of happy, clappy emotions. 
Christianity is Christ, by whom I live and for whom I live. Who do you think Jesus is? Look at that famous Christian Paul. Come across to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Paul thanks God in verse 13, for he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Then he describes Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The word firstborn means heir. Um, it, it's, it's, you know, in the idea that the, the firstborn inherits the estate and the secondborn's put in the army, the thirdborn's put in the, in the clergy, the fourthborn's sent out to the colonies. But the firstborn owns everything. Right? He is the firstborn, what of? All creation. Everything. For by him all things were created, in heaven, on earth, visible, visible, thrones, dominions, rulers, all things. We're talking about all things. Everything that has ever been created, which is everything, it's all been created by him, but not only by him, through him, and not only through him, for him. All the trees, all the rivers, all the mountains, all the hills, all the people, all you. You were made by him, through him, and you were made for him. That is extraordinary when you think about it, isn't it? You see, in this world, we make things. We make things for ourselves, or we pay somebody else to make something for us. But once it's been made for me, it's mine. I can do with as I like. It's my possession. It's been made for me. So I, I can understand that concept. But what this is saying is, I am a manufactured item. I have been made for him. Everything changes in how I view the world when I understand who Jesus is. At first, you may think and feel, especially because we are very sinful people, I don't like that. I want to make my own self. I want to determine my own life. I want self-determination. I, I, I want to make... I, I am a self-made man <laughs> because that's nonsense. I'm not. I wasn't. I never have been. That's a figment of, of a crazy, distorted imagination. And furthermore, it doesn't work as a life, as a choice. It's unreal. Society cannot function with everybody making the rules up for themselves. It doesn't work. It's a nonsense. It's the end point of atheism. You see it in the writings of Ayn Rand, for example. Uh, you'll see it in oh, the writings of Richard uh, Dawkins. You know, He says, there is no good, there is no evil. There's just pitiless, merciless existence. <laughs> it's an unlivable philosophy, is atheism. But once I'm no longer atheistic and I've now decided that I've been created, well, I've been created by whom for what? By Jesus, for him. That's what I mean by being the Lord. He's before all things, verse 17, and in him all things hold together. 
He's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He's not only the owner of this world, he's the owner of the world to come. Those who are risen from the dead. That in everything he is preeminent, for in him the whole fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth, in heaven, peace, made by the blood of his cross. All the fullness of God. Everything you want to say that is about God, you can say about Jesus. See, people come and say, can you prove the existence of God? I say, well, you can meet him one day. He he came here in this world. You've turned up the wrong place. It was Palestine. You've turned up the wrong century. It was the first century. But if you were there at that time, you could have face-to-face met God in the man Jesus Christ. Who do you think Jesus is? Because, you see, once you grasp this question, the answer to this question, it changes everything about you because Christianity is about Christ it's not about you it's about Christ and once you understand who he is it answers nearly all your questions about who am I so we're going to look over these four studies on who is Jesus because that's what this passage unravels for us But when it unravels who Jesus is, it unravels us at the same time. Good news is it puts us back together better than we ever were before. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his life and his teaching, his preaching, his his, uh, uh, obedience and submission to you. We thank you, Father, for his death and for his resurrection. We thank you that he is indeed the Lord of Lords and King of Kings, the rulers of the universe. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would help us to not only understand who he is, but in the light of understanding who he is, understanding who we are and what you require of us. And we pray for this and thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.